0: I think the fact that the President works overtime at trying to get people to face the situation as it really is may be the greatest thing he is doing. Certainly, our basic need is for truth, and not for the images and slogans that quote-unquote engineer consent. We are living in a dream world. We do not know ourselves or our adversaries. We are myths to ourselves, and they are myths to us. And we are secretly persuaded that we can shoot it out like the sheriffs on TV. This is not reality, and the President can do a tremendous amount to get people to see the facts more than any single person. Father Thomas Merton to Ethel Kennedy, December 1961 everybody, this is CJ, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man in this new and increasingly dark, dark age in which we find ourselves currently. So this is going to be a relatively concise DHP episode, and I'm going to be talking about JFK. Now, by no means is this episode my last word, or my comprehensive take on JFK and his significance as president into American history and the truth about his assassination and all that stuff. This is going to be more like an intro or a primer to a revisionist, anti-establishment, anti-official narrative take on JFK, his death, and the significance of his death. First, just a few announcements and things, some stuff related to this episode that has to do with, uh oh, I don't know, the next several months, this fall, whatever. But as some of you may know, if you follow me on social media, or if you're a supporter of the show and you're in the private Facebook group, or if you're in the DHP book club or something like that, you may be aware that I've been kind of revisiting JFK and his presidency, and his assassination this summer. And partly it was just because I watched the Oliver Stone JFK movie with my children um, a month or two ago, before my eldest move off to college, and it was their first time seeing the JFK movie, and both my kids now are teenagers, so, you know, they both were old enough to at least get a lot of it, you know, they're not as deeply versed in all the underground history of this stuff as I am. But, you know, they can follow the main points of a movie like Oliver Stone's JFK. And I did pause it every now and then to throw in some additional context, tell them some stuff that wasn't in the movie, or explain a little bit more on who somebody was, or whatever. But I did my best to resist the urge to, you know, pause it every couple minutes to (laughs) elaborate for a half hour on something, you know? But anyway, that was my first time watching that movie in probably somewhere between five and ten years. It had been a while. And I found I like the movie even more than whenever was the last time I watched it, in part because I know even more of the deep, you know, background and context of the JFK assassination story. And also in part because there's clearly a lot of relevance to recent and current events in terms of a lot of just like the big picture themes of that film. You know, like of a president not being in charge or in control of his own military and intelligence apparatus. And, you know, what can happen to an American president who deviates too much from what the establishment wants him to do? But another reason that I've been digging into JFK lately, and I've been, you know, revisiting some stuff I'd previously read about the JFK assassination and all that, and I've also been reading some stuff that I knew about, in some cases for a long time, had, you know, intended to eventually read, and finally I'm getting around to. So, a great example is Big Dent's book called JFK and the Unspeakable by James W. Douglas, and this book came out about 15 years ago. I think it came out around 2008. And I've been aware of this book since it was first published. I remember hearing the author on some of the early libertarian podcasts I was listening to, you know, stuff like the Lou Rockwell show, if any of you can remember that. Um, I can remember the author James Douglas being on there, maybe a few other places that I listened to. And so the book was on my list on my radar but like I said, you know, it's one of those, I've got like a million books on that list, you know, of history books I need to read at some point. And it just, you know, sat there dormant. And then as part of the Indiegogo campaign, which, by the way, is still active and you can still contribute to, one of the offers of perks is if you give enough a big enough contribution, you can commission your own DHP episode from me to produce on a topic of your choosing and if you contribute really generously you can even commission an entire miniseries and one of the excellent individuals who has contributed enough to me and my work here at the DHP to have the right to commission a miniseries from me was a guy I'm not sure if he'd be okay with me sharing his name publicly or not I haven't asked him so I'll just use his initials a guy I will call by his initials JT who contributed $2,000, which is what you need to get. You know, you get all the lower levels of perks for smaller contributions, but then on top of that, you also get the right to commission a DHP miniseries on a topic of your choice. And, you know, when someone contributes a big amount like that, I email them, and, you know, we usually kind of email back and forth, you know, and both of us take time to think about things, but basically to figure out what they'd like me to do a series on that's also, you know, Okay. By me, that's acceptable by me. And so far, most of the people that I've been communicating with on either a custom episode or a custom mini series, I think in all or at least most cases, the individual has actually given me a short list of multiple potential topics they would like me to do. And then, you know, put the ball in my court to pick whichever one I think would be best, you know, that I would want to do that would best fit the amount of Time or episodes that we're talking about, and you know, that I think the overall DHP audience would appreciate. And so JT, when I emailed him to say, hey, thanks for the generous contribution. Do you have any ideas what you'd like me to do a miniseries on? He emailed me uh with several different possibilities he was thinking of, and one of them was the JFK assassination. And I decided to take him up on that one because I was like, you know what? I've talked about it in passing when talking about other topics here and there. And, you know, I'm sure that anybody who's listened to my podcast for more than just an episode or two probably could at least guess that I don't buy the Warren Commission's official story. I don't buy the Oswald as a deranged lone nut with no connection to anybody else. I don't buy any of that. I I think the Warren Commission is very much something other than the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So. JT and I agreed that I would be doing the JFK assassination in a a mini-series, and, you know, in a mini-series which I think of as, like, three to four episodes, you know, not nearly as many episodes as a Wilson series or a Civil War series, but, you know, a multi-part thing that's more than just one or two parts anyway, by no means am I going to be able to cover everything— Related to the JFK assassination that's interesting or important or fishy or significant or whatever, but I plan on at least zeroing in on some of the things around that story that I think are the most interesting, the most important, that raise the most questions and red flags, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that poke the most holes in the official story, all that kind of stuff. By the way, the Indiegogo campaign is still live since it met its initial goal prior to my original deadline, now like a year ago. And so you can still contribute a one-time contribution, and as always, there will be a link in the show notes should you choose to do it. And yeah, if you too would like me to do a DHP episode on a topic of your choice, or even a mini series on the topic of your choice, and you're willing and able to, you know, kick in a decent contribution to my work, now that I'm totally freelance, without a safety net, no, you know, state-connected institution behind me to pay me even if I take a week off or do a half ass job or whatever like that, now that I'm operating totally off the reservation, I am like the gorillas, the guerrilla fighters in Mao Zedong's manual on guerrilla warfare, where I am a fish, and you folks you listeners and especially those of you who contribute to my work in some meaningful way, you know, typically financially, but also by helping uh, spread the word of the show, you know, um, whatever you can do to spread the word and maybe get me on as a guest on bigger podcasts or spreading the word to help me get good speaking gigs and things like this. Um, anyone who contributes to my work in any any way even if it's just as a regular listener, but especially if you go beyond that, you know, help spread the word, contribute financially, all these things. I think of you as the C in Mousy Tongue's metaphor. I think of you as the civilians who support my intellectual guerrilla insurgency, but you're not yourself an intellectual guerrilla insurgent. You've got, you know, whatever job, career, and obligations and things to do that you've got. You've got your own skill set and talents that's different from mine, but you value what I do and you want to contribute to it. So you are the sea, you are the water that allows an intellectual insurgent like me to continue to operate against the intellectual equivalent of the Leviathan State, which is all of these giant institutions, quote-unquote education and all that stuff. So anyway, it takes me a long time to do all the work necessary to do a long, in-depth, solo historical narrative type episode or miniseries. And so as a result, you know, it's been months since the people who contributed early to my Indiegogo campaign have picked, you know, their topics for episodes and series, and I haven't put any of them out yet, but I've been working on them behind the scenes. And with the JFK miniseries that's in the works, I realized that this November is the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. It was November 22nd, 1963, that JFK was shot and killed in Dallas. And so it was a no-brainer to me that, oh yeah, since I'm going to be doing a miniseries on the JFK assassination, Finally, after doing the DHP for nine years, I'm finally going to zero in on this, you know, major dangerous history story in American history. Of course, I want to try to time it so that I'm putting out at least the first episode of this mini series in November, and we'll see how I do. Maybe I can put out more than one, but I make no promises, because doing the longer solo narrative episodes at the quality level that you've come to expect and, you know, that I've set for myself, it takes a while. But, like I said, my goal is to have at least the first episode of a miniseries covering the JFK assassination, at least the first episode of it out this November. So that's the plan. I rarely make specific timeline promises or pledges or predictions, but this is a rare case where I will. But there's one other thing I want to mention, and in part, this is going to depend on the degree of support and contributions I get from you, the dear listeners. But I am most likely going to be attending and probably I'll be a presenter at the next event that Jack Spearco of the Survival Podcast has at his property in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Now, this event is going to be in early November of this year, so think about that. I will probably be in Texas this November, at least for a few days, if not maybe a little bit longer, and I've never really spent time in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I've only sort of passed through it on my way elsewhere. I've been to Texas a few times, but I've only ever been to West Texas, and so I know I've passed through the Dallas-Fort Worth area multiple times, going to and from various places. I'm pretty sure one of the times I went to West Texas, we flew into Dallas-Fort Worth and then rented a car and then drove uh, further west to the area we were visiting. But I've never actually hung out in and around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so of course, obviously, I've never gone to the JFK assassination site in Dallas in the museum there at the book depository and all that stuff, have met of that stuff. So I would love to be able to do that while I'm going to the TSP event at Jack Spierko's compound and to do that as like, you know, an attached side trip or whatever you want to call it. And the more listener support and contributions I can get, whether it's through the Indiegogo campaign, sending me one-time, you know, contributions through PayPal or Bitcoin, or signing up as a monthly donor via Subscribestar or Patreon, or any of the other ways you can contribute to my work, you can help me sort of sponsor me on this trip. I'm considering maybe even setting up a separate little Kickstarter or Indiegogo or some kind of crowdfunding for this trip, because here's the thing. If I can get enough contributions from listeners like you, I might be able to enlarge my trip to Texas in November, um, you know, hopefully at least beyond just going to Jack Spierko's event and also into some, you know, going to some of the sites related to the JFK assassination in Dallas. But if I can get enough listener contributions over the next couple of months there's a possibility I could do a DIY DHP tour, of which my stop in Texas in November would just be a part. So, some of you may recall me mentioning this as something that I sort of dreamed about doing for a while, especially ever since I heard my friend Brett Venat of the Late School Sucks Project, since he did something like this, he called it School Sucks Across America, he did a DIY tour from the East Coast all the way over to the West Coast of the United States and back. And he had various meetups and events and things along the way. And I thought, man, that's really cool for an indie podcaster to do sort of like a DIY, low-budget kind of tour across part of the country, meeting listeners and fans and stuff like that. And so I'd long thought of like two different tours that I would love to do. One is just going up the east coast of the United States, up to New England, and then back down. And then the other one that I thought of is across the Sunbelt of the United States. And so I thought, you know, I could... Obviously, starting in Florida, where I live, maybe run up to uh, Atlanta first. Maybe not. Maybe I would include Atlanta as part of going up the East Coast instead. I don't know. But then going west and, you know, potentially stopping in a variety of places. I'd have to hear from you all and do some recon and figure out where are the towns along the Sun Belt And the Sun Belt of the U.S. think, you know, mostly places that are along I-10 and maybe some of the other roads, you know, that are going east-west across the southern part of the United States, at least for segments. And so, you know, potential places I could stop would be places like Pensacola in Florida, would be places like New Orleans in Louisiana, would be places like you know, maybe somewhere in East Texas, aside from obviously I would be going to the Dallas-Fort Worth area as well. I might potentially want to also swing by Austin. If there is sufficient listeners and things going on, I could potentially stop in you know, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, those sorts of places might potentially go all the way to the Pacific Coast if I had the, the funds and also, you know, knew that there were enough listeners that we could maybe do some events or meetups or whatever like that in, I don't know, Southern California. Uh, much as I, I hate California, I mean, the geography of it is gorgeous. It's just inhabited by crazy people and governed by even crazier and evil people. But anyway, so there's a possibility of me doing this fall, which is a great time to travel across the Sunbelt, by the way, when it's not, you know, at the peak of hotness. I may be able to do sort of like an I-10 across America route, maybe with some, you know, detours here and there, but to do a DHP DIY little tour. So I wanted to throw that out there as a possibility, something I'm thinking about to not just go to the TSP event. Not just go as well to some of the JFK-related Dallas sites, but maybe instead of flying out to Dallas to go to the TSP event, maybe doing a road trip across the U.S. Sunbelt in the fall of this year. Now, you know, if there's not the demand for it in terms of people wanting um, to, you know, attend meetups and events and things along the way if there's not the willingness of people to kick in and support so that I could even afford to do something like this, whatever, then I won't do it. Then I'll just go out to Jack's event, maybe, you know, fit in a little bit of a detour to see some of the JFK stuff in Dallas. We'll see. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. And for the rest of this episode, I'm going to give sort of like a preview of some of my thoughts on JFK and his assassination, and in particular, some of the ways in which my thoughts on that have been further influenced and really kind of refined by, in recent weeks, reading James Douglas's book JFK and the Unspeakable. So, I like the way that Douglas talks about Kennedy's shift from being a very doctrinaire Cold Warrior into having serious doubts about the wisdom of the Cold War and making serious moves to try and defuse some of the tension, maybe even work towards a permanent settlement so that the U.S. and Soviet Union could peacefully coexist. And he talks about it in Catholic terms. Douglas is a deeply Catholic guy, and um, he often refers to a lot of the writings of the Catholic monk Thomas Merton about the Cold War and about Kennedy in the early 60s. And he uses, Douglas does, the religious term turning to describe JFK's shift in mindset. And one of the things that seems clear about JFK is for all of his many flaws and imperfections etc. one of his virtues was a willingness to always be open-minded, to always listen to alternate points of view, and to always be willing to reassess his own assumptions and premises. And so it seems like in most ways when Kennedy was elected president in 1960, he was a pretty typical Cold War democrat of the time period. In fact, more than once during the campaign, he criticized the Eisenhower administration from the right on foreign policy, saying, you know, they weren't doing enough, they weren't being aggressive enough, they weren't spending enough on the military, etc. So he came in as a pretty typical young Cold War Democrat, and It didn't take long, though, for him to at least start having doubts. And the big thing, of course, was the Bay of Pigs operation. And I won't dig into that here in detail because of time. I'm sure I'll get into it more in the actual Kennedy miniseries this fall. But basically, CIA director Alan Dulles, who stuck around after the Eisenhower administration, at least initially, and some other top CIA people like Richard Bissell, they played Kennedy. They manipulated him into greenlighting the Bay of Pigs operation to try and overthrow the government of Cuba. And the CIA guys behind it, they knew that the Bay of Pigs invasion itself wasn't going to overthrow Castro. But they believed they could maneuver Kennedy into a situation where he felt like politically he had no choice but to send in the entire might of the U.S. Army and the rest of the U.S. military to salvage the situation once the Cuban exiles, you know, the CIA's little private army, started to get in trouble against Castro. And Kennedy exhibited his first real instance of independence as president in pulling the plug on the Bay of Pigs once it was clear to him that the Cuban exile army was not able to win on their own. And so, That made him start to seriously doubt the CIA, as well as a lot of his top military advisors, who were also urging him to go in with conventional military forces. And of course, in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy fired Dulles, I believe he either fired or kind of transferred, sort of demoted career cul-de-sac, I forget which, Richard Bissell, and started seriously doubting the CIA and even talking some shit about them. Then there was the Cuban Missile Crisis in the fall of 1962, and the fact that Kennedy was able to successfully defuse that without World War III by making a deal with the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, through secret back-channel communications and, you know, making an agreement that Khrushchev would remove those missiles from Cuba if the U.S., Promise not to invade Cuba, and also if the U.S. removed similar missiles that were then stationed in Turkey, you know, that was the deal. And Kennedy was able to peacefully resolve the Cuban Missile Crisis with that deal. And it was the beginning of seemingly both him and Khrushchev having second thoughts about the wisdom of the Cold War in the nuclear age and starting to have more and more direct back-channel communications. Because the reality was, both Kennedy and Khrushchev were kind of shook by the Cuban Missile Crisis. They both, you know, were not 100% great guys across the board. They both had serious character flaws and issues and imperfections. And, you know, Khrushchev, as somebody who came up in the Soviet political system in the Stalin era, had a lot of bad things he had done in his past, rising up through the Soviet ranks. But, I don't think either of them were like completely deranged psychopaths or sociopaths. I I still think that they both, in their own way, had some sort of a conscience, as imperfect as it may have been, and some sort of a sense of caution and that the Cold War was just getting out of hand and getting too reckless in the era of H-bombs and ICBMs. And so from the Cuban Missile Crisis forward, Kennedy and Khrushchev carried out very interesting secret back-channel correspondence over the next year and change until Kennedy's death. And they were really starting to develop some amount of rapport, it seems like. And there was at least the possibility that the Cold War might have ended much earlier than it did, that JFK and Khrushchev might have developed a relationship at least somewhat like Reagan and Gorbachev in the 80s. And again, the fact that Kennedy was able to solve the Cuban Missile Crisis without resorting to war actually pissed off a lot of his military and intelligence people, because a lot of them, again, wanted him to go to war in Cuba, even if that risked triggering World War III up to and including nukes. And Kennedy continued to do things that irked many of his top military and intelligence people, such as he made an agreement with the Soviets to neutralize Laos. This was part of the whole, you know, France leaving Southeast Asia sort of deal. Some of the territory they were leaving became what we think of as Vietnam. Some of it became Laos and uh, Cambodia as well. And so there was a similar situation going on in Laos at the beginning of Kennedy's presidency to what we think of as going on in Vietnam, where communist and anti-communist forces were fighting it out for control of the country. And Kennedy worked on a deal that basically neutralized Laos that said, you know, neither the U.S. nor the communists are going to uh, continue to sponsor violent forces for their side in Laos. And instead they were going to mutually agree on I forget all the details, but basically setting up a kind of center left neutral government that wasn't quite communist, but wasn't quite, you know, 100 percent pro West. And then, you know, also agreeing on like future elections and things like this. And again, a lot of the higher ups in military and intelligence worlds hated that Kennedy did this because they wanted to fight a counterinsurgency war in Laos like they later tried to fight in Vietnam. And then there was the fact that particularly over the course of the last year or so of his life and his presidency, Kennedy was more and more moving towards disengaging from Vietnam as well. And again, to a lot of his top military and intelligence people, this was borderline treasonous and certainly, you know, qualified as Chamberlain-style Munich appeasement. Kennedy was also, and a lot of this stuff would have been secret behind the scenes, but many of his top military and intelligence people would have had at least kind of like a hint of what was going on. He had continuing secret back-channel communications, sometimes through intermediaries, not just with Khrushchev, but also even with Castro. And there's a fair amount of evidence that Douglas goes over in JFK and the Unspeakable that indicates that Kennedy was seriously interested in trying to have some sort of rapprochement, some sort of... You know, reset in U.S.-Cuba relations and, you know, to normalize relations with Castro eventually, that sort of thing. And Kennedy was definitely interested, especially in the second half of his presidency, with making as many arms control agreements with the Soviets as he could, interest in limiting the number and types of nuclear weapons interest in rolling back or even stopping certain kinds of nuclear testing, those sorts of things. And he did make some agreements on that front and wanted to make more. And again, it was mutual. It seems like Khrushchev really got shook by the Cuban Missile Crisis as well. They had both kind of stared into the abyss of the end of the world and decided, all right, you know what? As much as ideologically, I don't like the other side and I think they're, you know, not 100% to be trusted. And, you know, I think my system is the superior one. But at the same time, if we all go up in a ball of nuclear flame, that's not good for anybody. And again, to the degree that his top military and intelligence people occasionally got, you know, little hints and whiffs of what was going on with Kennedy wanting to get out of Vietnam, wanting to normalize relations with Cuba, wanting to improve relations with the Soviet Union, maybe even move towards, you know, a settlement of the Cold War itself. All of these things... Pissed off, infuriated, and terrified many of his military and intelligence advisors. They saw it almost like the way the liberal press saw Trump with Russiagate. They saw these things Kennedy was saying and doing as almost being like he's a Manchurian candidate of the Kremlin. You know, he's a closet communist sympathizer. And so from their perspective, I can see how very easily their mind could say, well, you know what? We got to get rid of this guy by any means necessary because he's a threat to American national security. So those are just some very brief kind of bullet points of some of the main motivations behind the national security state deciding to whack JFK, which I very much believe they did now. Vast majority of people who work at the CIA or work at the Pentagon had no involvement and no knowledge of this. It's all done with compartmentalization and need to know and, you know, only using special groups within the group kind of thing. But I do believe that the main impetus behind killing Kennedy and then covering it up, Was the CIA. I think there were varying degrees of knowledge and involvement from other parts of the government, including some of the Pentagon higher ups, particularly military intelligence type people who often worked very closely with the CIA. I also think it's very likely that some of the top generals of the time, at the very least, had some notion of what was afoot, even if they weren't personally involved in it. And some of them may have been. But anyway, those are some of the main things that I think caused the establishment to ultimately decide to throw JFK under the bus, because he was increasingly in danger of ending the Cold War. But I'm sure in my miniseries on the assassination, I'll dig into all this and more in more detail. But anyway, that's the context leading up to one of the more famous speeches of the latter half of JFK's presidency, which he gave in June of 1963, just over five months from when he would be assassinated. So this was a commencement address that John F. Kennedy gave on June 10th, 1963 at American University. And this is when he was pretty far along his path of Cold War revisionism, his turning, as James Douglas would put it, when he was really working hard to try to improve relations with the Soviet Union, get out of Vietnam, reestablish relations with Cuba, etc. So the remainder of this episode, I'm just going to be sharing Uh, Some large excerpts from this speech with you. So you can get a sense of where JFK's thinking was at only about five months before he was whacked. And, you know, if my take and that of many others is correct, whacked largely at the instigation of some top CIA guys. By the way, he does, I will skip over this part for my own gastrointestinal health. He does start off the speech by briefly quoting and I think maybe even complimenting Woodrow Wilson. To be fair, he does this, I think, in large measure because Woodrow Wilson spoke at the opening of American University back in 1914. So, you know, I'll forgive him there. And, you know, Wilson was a Democratic president only about 50 years before Kennedy. So, you know, it'd be like some, but I don't know, if RFK Jr. by some miracle got elected president and he's speaking somewhere and he quotes and says something nice about, you know, Jimmy Carter. It's like, eh, you know. He's saying something nice about a president from his party from 50 years ago, like, whatever. You know, who knows how much JFK had deeply studied Woodrow Wilson or not. So skipping over that intro, let me get into the speech. JFK says, quote, I have chosen this time and this place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth is too rarely perceived. Yet it is the most important topic on Earth. World peace. What kind of peace do I mean? What kind of peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave, or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on Earth worth living. The kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and to build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace for all time. I speak of peace because of the new face of war. Total war makes no sense in an age when great powers can maintain large and relatively invulnerable nuclear forces, and refuse to surrender without resort to those forces. It makes no sense in an age when a single nuclear weapon contains almost ten times the explosive force delivered by all the Allied air forces in the Second World War. It makes no sense in an age when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn. Today, the expenditure of billions of dollars every year on weapons acquired for the purpose of making sure we never need to use them is essential to keeping the peace. But surely, the acquisition of such idle stockpiles, which can only destroy and never create, is not the only, much less the most efficient, means of assuring peace. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize that the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuer fall on deaf ears. But we have no more urgent task. Some say that it is useless to speak of world peace or world law or world disarmament, and that it will be useless until the leaders of the Soviet Union adopt a more enlightened attitude. I hope they do. I believe we can help them do it. But I also believe that we must re examine our own attitude, as individuals and as a nation, for our attitude is as essential as theirs. And every graduate of this school, every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace, should begin by looking inward by examining his own attitude toward the possibilities of peace, toward the Soviet Union, toward the course of the Cold War, and toward freedom and peace here at home. First, let us examine our attitude towards peace itself. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, I am not referring to the absolute infinite concept of peace and goodwill, of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. I do not deny the value of hopes and dreams, but we merely invite discouragement and incredulity by making that our only and immediate goal. Let us focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace, based not on a sudden revolution in human nature, but on a gradual evolution in human institutions, on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements which are in the interests of all concerned. There is no single simple key to this peace, no grand or magic formula to be adopted by one or two powers. Genuine peace must be the product of many nations, the sum of many acts. It must be dynamic, not static, changing to meet the challenge of each new generation. For peace is a process, a way of solving problems. With such a peace, there will still be quarrels and conflicting interests, as there are within families and nations. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbor. It requires only that they live together in mutual tolerance submitting their disputes to a just and peaceful settlement. And history teaches us that enmities between nations, as between individuals, do not last forever. However fixed our likes and dislikes may seem, the tide of time and events will often bring surprising changes in the relations between nations and neighbors. So let us persevere. Peace need not be impracticable, and war need not be inevitable. By defining our goal more clearly, by making it seem more manageable and less remote, we can help all peoples to see it, to draw hope from it, and to move irresistibly toward it. Second, let us re-examine our attitude toward the Soviet Union. It is discouraging to think that their leaders may actually believe what their propagandists write. It is discouraging to read a recent authoritative Soviet text on military strategy and find, on page after page, wholly baseless and incredible claims, such as the allegation that, quote, American imperialist circles are preparing to unleash different types of wars, that there is a very real threat of a preventative war being unleashed by American imperialists, against the Soviet Union, and that the political aims of the American imperialists are to enslave, economically and politically, the European and other capitalist countries, and to achieve world domination by means of aggressive wars. Truly, as it was written long ago, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Yet, it is sad to read these Soviet statements, to realize the extent of the gulf between us. But it is also a warning. A warning to the American people not to fall into the same trap as the Soviets. Not to see only a distorted and desperate view of the other side. Not to see conflict as inevitable, accommodation as impossible, and communication as nothing more than an exchange of threats. No government, or social system is so evil that its people must be considered as lacking in virtue. As Americans, we find communism profoundly repugnant as a negation of personal freedom and dignity. But we can still hail the Russian people for their many achievements in science, and space, in economic and industrial growth, in culture, and in acts of courage. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger than our mutual abhorrence of war. Almost unique among the major world powers, we have never been at war with each other. And no nation in the history of battle ever suffered more than the Soviet Union suffered in the course of the Second World War. At least 20 million lost their lives. Countless millions of homes and farms were burned or sacked. A third of the nation's territory, including nearly two-thirds of its industrial base, was turned into a wasteland, a loss equivalent to the devastation of this country east of Chicago. Today, should total war ever break out again, no matter how, our two countries would become the primary targets. It is an ironic but accurate fact that the two strongest powers are the two in the most danger of devastation. All we have built, all we have worked for, would be destroyed in the first 24 hours. And even in the Cold War, which brings burdens and dangers to so many nations, including this nation's closest allies, our two countries bear the heaviest burdens. For we are both devoting Massive sums of money to weapons that could be better devoted to combating ignorance, poverty, and disease. We are both caught up in a vicious and dangerous cycle in which suspicion on one side breeds suspicion on the other, and new weapons beget counterweapons. In short, both the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union and its allies, have a mutually deep interest in a just and genuine peace and in halting the arms race. Agreements to this end are in the interest of the Soviet Union as well as ours, and even the most hostile nations can be relied upon to accept and keep those treaty obligations, and only those treaty obligations, which are in their own interest. So, let us not be blind to our differences— but let us also direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For, in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our nation's We all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. Third, let us re-examine our attitude toward the Cold War, remembering that we are not engaged in a debate, seeking to pile up debating points. We are not here distributing blame or pointing the finger of judgment. We must deal with the world as it is, and not as it might have been had the history of the last 18 years been different. We must therefore persevere in the search for peace in the hope that constructive changes within the Communist bloc might bring within reach solutions which now seem beyond us. We must conduct our affairs in such a way that it becomes in the Communist interests to agree on a genuine peace. Above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy, or of a collective death wish for the world. To secure these ends, America's weapons are non-provocative, carefully controlled, designed to deter, and capable of selective use. Our military forces are committed to peace and disciplined in self-restraint. Our diplomats are instructed to avoid unnecessary irritants and purely rhetorical hostility. And I just have to insert here as a little side comment, I don't even think JFK fully believed this when he said it. I think he was in this one little paragraph that I just read, I think he was briefly kind of engaging in some wishful thinking. I mean, he must have known by now that America's military forces, at least when it comes to a lot of the Pentagon's top brass and a lot of the top intelligence people, they are not committed to peace and discipline and self-restraint. JFK knew better by the time he said this, but I think, you know, he kind of felt like strategically, rhetorically, he had to make this little sort of genuflection at the concept of the U.S. military as this purely defensive, very, very restrained almost reluctant force and the same thing you know with diplomats desperately trying to avoid offending other nations like clearly that wasn't really the case but i would also point out that as much as those things in that paragraph that i just read were not true in 1963 they're a thousand times less true in 2023 by the way this is almost exactly the 60 year anniversary of this speech i just realized we're basically you know 60 years and then another month and a half Um, from when this speech was given in June of 1963. All right, back to JFK's words, quote, For we can seek a relaxation of tension without relaxing our guard. And for our part, we do not need to use threats to prove that we are resolute. We do not need to jam foreign broadcasts out of fear our faith will be eroded. We are unwilling to impose our system on any unwilling people. But we are willing and able to engage in peaceful competition with any people on Earth. Meanwhile, we seek to strengthen the United Nations to help solve its financial problems to make it a more effective instrument for peace, to develop it into a genuine world security system, a system capable of resolving disputes on the basis of law, of ensuring the security of the large and the small, and of creating conditions under which arms can finally be abolished. At the same time, we seek to keep peace inside the non-communist world where many nations, all of them are friends, are divided over issues which weaken Western unity, which invite communist intervention, or which threaten to erupt into war. Speaking of other nations, I wish to make one point clear. We are bound to many nations by alliances. Those alliances exist because our concern and theirs substantially overlap. Our commitment to defend Western Europe and West Berlin For example, stands undiminished because of the identity of our vital interests. The United States will make no deal with the Soviet Union at the expense of other nations and other peoples, not merely because they are our partners, but also because their interests and ours converge. Our interests converge, however, not only in defending the frontiers of freedom, but in pursuing the paths of peace. It is our hope and the purpose of allied policies, to convince the Soviet Union that she too should let each nation choose its own future, so long as that choice does not interfere with the choices of others. The communist drive to impose their political and economic system on others is the primary cause of world tension today. For there can be no doubt that, if all nations would refrain from interfering in the self-determination of others— the peace would be much more assured. This will require a new effort to achieve world law, a new context for world discussions. It will require increased understanding between the Soviets and ourselves, and increased understanding will require increased contact and communication. One step in this direction is the proposed arrangement for a direct line between Moscow and Washington to avoid on each side the dangerous delays, misunderstandings, and misreadings of each other's actions which might occur at a time of crisis. We have also been talking in Geneva about the other first step measures of arms control designed to limit the intensity of the arms race and to reduce the risks of accidental war. Our primary long-range interest in Geneva, however, is general and complete disarmament, designed to take place by stages, permitting parallel political developments to build the new institutions of peace which would take the place of arms. The one major area of these negotiations where the end is in sight, yet where a fresh start is badly needed, is in a treaty to outlaw nuclear tests. Surely, This goal is sufficiently important to require our steady pursuit, yielding neither to the temptation to give up the whole effort, nor the temptation to give up our insistence on vital and responsible safeguards. I am taking this opportunity, therefore, to announce two important decisions in this regard. First, Chairman Khrushchev, Prime Minister Macmillan, and I have agreed— that high-level discussions will begin shortly in Moscow, looking toward early agreements on a comprehensive test-ban treaty. Our hopes must be tempered with the caution of history, but with our hopes go the hopes of all mankind. Second, to make clear our good faith and solemn convictions on the matter, I now declare that the United States does not propose to conduct nuclear tests in the atmosphere, so long as other states do not do so. We will not be the first to resume. Such a declaration is no substitute for a formal binding treaty, but I hope it will help us achieve one. Nor would such a treaty be a substitute for disarmament, but I hope it will help us achieve it. Wherever we are, we must all in our daily lives live up to the age-old faith that peace and freedom walk together, In too many of our cities today, the peace is not secure because the freedom is incomplete. It is the responsibility of the executive branch at all levels of government, local, state, and national, to provide and protect that freedom for all of our citizens by all means within their authority. And is not peace, in the last analysis, basically a matter of human rights, the right to live out our lives without fear of devastation? the right to breathe air, as nature provided it, the right of future generations to a healthy existence. While we proceed to safeguard our national interests, let us also safeguard human interests. And the elimination of war and arms is clearly in the interests of both. No treaty, however much it may be to the advantage of all, however tightly it may be worded, can provide absolute security against the risks of deception and evasion. But it can, if it is sufficiently effective in its enforcement, and if it is sufficiently in the interests of its signers, offer far more security and far fewer risks than an unabated, uncontrolled, unpredictable arms race. The United States, as the world knows, will never start a war. End quote. I'm sorry, I can't help but again point out, you know, this is more wishful thinking, Kennedy kind of saying what he wished was the truth of the U.S., Rather than the reality. And if it was the reality, if it wasn't the reality, you know, 60 years ago, how much less is it the reality now that the United States will never start a war? Anyway, back to Kennedy, quote, We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough of war and hate and oppression. We shall be prepared if others wish it. We shall be alert to try to stop it but we shall also do our part to build a world of peace where the weak are safe and the strong are just. We are not helpless before that task or hopeless of its success. Confident and unafraid, we labor on, not toward a strategy of annihilation, but toward a strategy of peace." So, both James Douglas and many of the other JFK revisionists. Researchers and historians and authors and filmmakers think this speech was a very important one. It's, you know, about five months before Kennedy was assassinated, and many people, and I'm inclined to agree, see this speech as reflecting a lot of the changed paradigm on the whole issue of the Cold War and War and Peace that Kennedy had been going through largely privately, you know, off the record behind the scenes. In a lot of his public speeches and things, he continued to sound like a fairly typical cold warrior a lot of the time. Not always. And occasionally his growing peacenikism would slip through. But this speech is very interesting because it's, you know, almost entirely peacenik sounding. And it's, again, about five months before he was assassinated. And so I don't yet have a strong belief on when the green light was given. Within, you know, the higher halls of the Pentagon and Langley to eliminate Kennedy. But if it hadn't already been, you know, decided by the time of this speech, I think this speech might have been potentially at least the thing that nudged the powers that be the last, you know, few inches to decide, all right, this guy's gotta go. He is a loose cannon. Now, I certainly don't agree with everything in the speech. Like I, you know, pointed out in digressions a couple times during it, there were a few passages where I think Kennedy and I think he knew better, was describing the U.S. through rose-colored glasses, you know, more in terms of the American government's own marketing than in terms of the historical reality, which Kennedy was becoming increasingly, you know, familiar with from the inside as president. You know, seeing how the Pentagon and the CIA really operated. But, you know, I can give him some slack on that because it's a, you know, idealistic-sounding speech at a commencement of a university, and so, you know, I give him a certain amount of rhetorical license, and like I said, he does, you know, compliment and quote Woodrow Wilson at the beginning, whatever. Um, The only other thing I would say is that he, in, in criticism of this speech, is that he has a bit more faith and optimism for the United Nations than I ever would. But I can somewhat cut him some slack even on that, because this is still less than 20 years after the end of World War II, and a lot of people all over the political spectrum in the United States in You know, the two decades or so following World War II, a lot of them had a lot of belief and hope and optimism for the UN to, you know, really be a positive thing. Um, if memory serves, I think even Senator Robert Taft, who was really the highest ranking politician of the kind of old right, the anti-war conservatism of the 1930s and 40s into the early 50s, even Robert Taft, I believe, if memory serves, often praised the United Nations, or, you know, said the United Nations needed to have more influence and and power to mediate wars and things like this. So, you know, it is what it is. But I still like this speech very much and think it's very important. And in particular, I like the fact that Kennedy takes like a, you know, remove the obstruction from your own eye before you point out the obstruction in your neighbor's eye kind of thing, you know clean up your room before you try to fix the world, where Kennedy says, look, they've got their misconceptions about us, their paranoia about us, it is what it is, we have strong disagreements with their ideology, you know, of their system, but we can't control their attitudes. One thing we can do, though, is try and set an example and, you know, make some of the tentative first moves, because we can't just expect them to to make all the first moves and to change their entire system because we say so. We have to be willing to make some offers, like his promise to not do atmospheric nuclear testing unless someone else, you know, started doing it first. And in particular, I really appreciate the amount of empathy that he tries to have in this speech, that he tries to put himself in the other guy's shoes and say, look, you know, fine, we disagree with their system. We think it's got a lot of, you know, bad aspects to it but these are still human beings. They're not all necessarily evil as individual human beings, especially just average Russian people. And the fact that he brought up World War II, that he brought up, look, you know, half their country was destroyed by World War II. Something the U.S. has no sense of. Like, you know, the worst destruction this country ever experienced was during the Civil War, and that was almost entirely in the South. And of course, it pales in comparison to the destruction that any of the major belligerents suffered in World War II, especially the Soviets who suffered the worst in both destruction and death. And so the fact that Kennedy in this speech kind of brings that up and is like, look, you know, yeah, they're paranoid and we may think it's irrational, but we need to see it from their perspective and we need to take that into account. And in most instances in this speech, I think he does a good job of like trying to tack back and forth between idealistic sounding rhetoric about bringing about true peace, but also having some concrete, specific, you know, practical nuts and bolts suggestions of next action items, to put it in modern jargon. But anyway, I hope this episode gave you uh, something to think about. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're as excited about the upcoming JFK Assassination miniseries as I am. And like I said, I hope you'll consider contributing to my work if you're not already a contributor or contributing again or increasing your contribution if you're a monthly contributor or something like that, in part so that I can, you know, keep doing this thing and not have to get a job digging ditches or something like that to make ends meet. But also so that I can potentially enlarge my trip to Texas this fall to include some JFK tourism. And, you know, research and all that. I could maybe even do some uh, podcasting and videos and stuff of my experiences. That's a possibility. I've got pretty good mobile audio podcasting gear, but I could potentially, if I had the funds, get some good mobile video production gear. I don't know, GoPro or something like that, so that I could document some of my um, JFK travels and things. And you know what? If I got enough support and contributions from listeners like you, I could potentially enlarge this thing. To a Sunbelt DHP road trip tour. And potentially could visit all sorts of cool places along the way. You know, if if I did a full I 10 Sunbelt tour, there's all kinds of things. If you just look at like the route in and around I 10 from North Florida to Southern California, there's a lot of interesting places along the way. Some of which have real dangerous history relevance. You know, some places in like New Mexico, Arizona. You know, four corners area that have to do with nukes and the cold war and developing and testing a bombs in New Mexico, all that sort of stuff. So the sky's the limit depending on what I've got as far as resources. So I hope you'll consider contributing, especially if you're somebody who lives somewhere along the route from like Jacksonville to, I don't know, San Diego or LA. If you're someone who lives along the sun belt corridor and You think it'd be cool if I stopped in to visit, you know, your area or something like that? Then, hey, you've got a a special motivation to want to chip in. But anyway, throwing that out there, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm still fighting off the remnants of a cold. I don't know if it'll come through in the recording or not. Sometimes it sounds to my ear anyway, like it does, and sometimes it sounds like it doesn't when I record an episode with a cold. But anyway, hopefully next few days I'll fight off what's left of this cold and be, you know, back to... A hundred percent, at least on that front, I am continuing to get better day to day, week to week, as far as recovering from all the damage I did to my brain with alcohol abuse. So there's that. And um also, I just want to let you all know, I'm working my ass off right now on trying to get done the next Woodrow Wilson episode, which will be the episode about American neutrality, quote unquote. It'll be the episode about the Wilson administration from the summer of 1914, when World War I breaks out. To The spring of 1917, when Wilson finally asked Congress to declare war and, you know, all the ways that Wilson and his administration weren't really neutral and all that sort of stuff. So it's going to be a massive episode. Another one of these ones that's, you know, multiple hours, that's probably going to have two to three dozen uh, pages of notes that I'm currently working on composing based on, you know, extensive research. So anyway, this is going to be a huge one, and I'm bad at focusing on something and working on that continuously till it's done. I, I tend to be sort of ADD, where I work for a little while on one you know, project, and then I switch and work on another project. And I'm trying to get better, at least a lot of the time, about focusing more for longer periods of time. And so, you know, I've been working a lot on the Woodrow Wilson's Banana Wars bonus episode that I'm going to be doing for patreon and subscribe star supporters but i realized you know what i really want to get the next regular wilson episode this one on the first three years of world war one i want to get that done first and so just you know the past week or two i've been really focusing a lot on that so that's in the works i'm doing my best to get that done as soon as possible so you've got that to look forward to as well thanks as always for listening those of you who have contributed and or those of you who may consider contributing to me and my work after hearing this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this one. Talk to you soon.